Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Blur Paddy Main was one of the founders of the SAS in World War II. The squadron was an elite commando force, set up to raid behind enemy lines. The special force needed a special kind of soldier. Paddy Main was just the kind of man needed. Born in Newtonards in 1915, his exploits in battle saw him win many honours. His fame lives on, 80 years later. But who was he really? Why was he denied the Victoria Cross? And has the complex nature of the man muddied his legacy? To tell the story of Paddy Main, I'm joined by Belfast Telegraph reporter Andrew Madden. Andrew, you're very welcome to the Bell Tale once again. Can we start in the beginning? I think many people in Northern Ireland will have a recollection that, that there was this character, this man, Blair Paddy Main, and he is connected to here. He was a very well-known leader in World War II uh, at a certain level, of course, and he was one of the founders of the SAS. And I think if anyone saw pictures of them, they would see, you know, this long-range attack raiding parties and they had they had Arab-type headdresses and they were on the jeeps, etc. Mm-hmm. That's who he is. It's the guy in the jeep, if someone has never heard the of him. The guy in the jeep, indeed. But let's start at the beginning. Who, who was mm-hmm. he? Well, he came from um, a fairly prominent uh, landowning Protestant family in Newtonards. Um, he was the sixth of seven children. He was born in 1915. Um, his family ran a series of businesses, one of them being a grocery, and they lived in this huge property called Mount Pleasant, which is about 41 acres. I think it's now been turned into a housing development. Um, but anyway, he was known as quite a kind of shy and reserved child in school. He did fairly well academically, but he really excelled in sport. Now, he was a big fella. He was just over six foot two. Um, in particular, he excelled in uh, rugby and boxing. He went to Regent House Grammar School. Um, then he went on to study law at Queen's, um, so he got the, got good enough grades to go into Queen's. And then, due to his prowess on the rugby pitch, he was actually got his first cap for the British and Irish Lions in 1937. And that's kind of where his reputation kind of started, um, because he went on tour with the British and Irish Lions in 1938. Um, 
in South Africa. And there's various stories about him uh, doing the, the rock star thing of trashing his uh, teammates' hotel rooms. And there was even one occasion where, he, I don't, this could be fairly anecdotal, I guess, where he befriended a convict who was working on the um, Ellis Park Stadium in Johannesburg. And he temporarily freed him and took him for a drink. Um, the guy was returned later on. Now, his rugby career was cut short, obviously, with the outbreak of the Second World War. Um, that's where, his, obviously, his military career started. So in 1939, he would have joined the Supplementary Reserve in Newtonards. And then after um, swapping and changing a bit, he was eventually assigned to the Royal Ulster Rifles. And then he volunteered for the newly formed Scottish Commando. Now, so he joined, he, he wasn't, he was a reservist, he was, mm-hmm. I think, he was he in the cadets? Or he was something? in the cadets, yeah, yeah, Queen's. Yeah. In, in, in Queen's, so he mm-hmm. probably always had an interest in, 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 in military affairs, etc. So yeah. then his war came along. 100%. You know, he grew up, you know, as I say, in the big 41-acre uh, sprawling Mount Pleasant, and you know, there's stories of him as a child, you know, being out shooting and hunting and whatnot. So he had that kind of background, and, you know, his namesake was a, was a British um, army soldier, and you know, he had family that served in the service. Services. So he did have that background, whether or not he was always destined to that or he always wanted to be that. We don't know, or if it was just the case of, you know, just after World War One and World War Two broke out and he saw it as his, as his duty. And he volunteered to become a commando, which was quite a new thing, I think, in World War Two. but a specialist soldier, an elite soldier, and maybe a soldier who was naturally going to see an awful lot of action. He was straight very in much, there. Very much, yeah. These were seen as kind of the cutting edge of, of the spear in the British Army. And there's this, this new idea. Winston Churchill wanted this kind of um, these snatch and grab operations where they would go in behind enemy lines, you know. And that's where really the idea of the SAS came from, um, to really inflict damage. Um, when he volunteered for the Scottish Commander, he first saw action, it would have been in 1941. That would have been during the Syria-Lebanon campaign. Um, and he did very well. He got mentioned in dispatches. Um, but this is where the questions around his, his character and, and the legend really, really came to be. But he wasn't one for... Um, I think the term is he wasn't a model officer. He wasn't a model officer. No, no. I don't even think he, if people could say he'd be a model person in some respects. No, he was known for being very insubordinate, heavy drinking, getting into fights. In several um, cases, he, he was, you know, uh, brought before the military courts and whatnot. You wonder, he must have been very good at what he did in terms of being a soldier in action. Mm-hmm. I mean, because I've been hurriedly reading some of the stories about him. Of course, yeah. And you just think, okay, how did you get away with this? Exactly. If there was like a, you know, a regular soldier, shall we say, he wouldn't have got away with half of what Blair Mayen got away with. Um, it goes without saying. So there must have been something really exceptional about him, which turned out to be true. And it was uh, it was proved in how highly decorated he was. Um and suppose that's where we get to the SAS, which also probably plays a role in it because the SAS were newly formed regiment. They were this kind of ragtag bunch of um, unconventional soldiers. Um, they had their own, own command. They um, they kind of only they served directly for themselves and only um, only really spoke to to the higher ups. They didn't have a direct chain of command as you would normally have in the British Army. So there was they were kind of self disciplined. Um, and 
that's maybe probably fed into how he was able to do his own thing, as we say, because they were all doing their own thing in the middle of the desert, um, in Egypt and Libya and various other places. So, I mean, the SAS is founded and a legend is born and that's mm -hmm. why we're talking about yeah. this. And as you say, they, they, they didn't sit around in trenches or they didn't have the normal function of, of, of a, a normal soldier's life. Having said that, they carried out raids. Uh, we mentioned, you know, the jeeps, etc. Mm -hmm. deep behind enemy lines, mm -hmm. constantly in danger. The you know they were genuinely people who were constantly putting themselves at at at, at risk in in that sense, and this is where the legend really gets going around Paddy Moon. Of course, yeah, yeah. You're talking in late 1941-42 is when he joined what would become the SAS. It was originally just the parachute regiment. Before then, no one had parachuted in the desert before. Um, Blair Man or any of the rest of them hadn't even parachuted before. Um, so that's what they became. So it was their task, which they. Uh, uh, David Sterling, who was the leader of the first SAS when it became that, um, had this idea of getting small contained groups going behind enemy lines, um, blowing up plane supply lines, and then retreating back into their desert base where they where they wouldn't be caught. Um, They're what we would call nowadays the special forces. Indeed, yes. But the concept didn't really didn't exist at that stage. You know, you you started seeing the paratroopers coming through as an elite soldiers and, you know, mm -hmm. commandos as these raiding parties. And I suppose the sheer mass of people involved in the armed forces, not everybody's suitable for this kind of thing and but you find course, these yeah. extra special soldiers yeah. who, who who do this yeah. very special work. And at the time it wasn't whenever um this idea was pitched by they was starting it wasn't widely accepted and it took a long time for the SA itself to be accepted because they operated um, outside the rules of the normal British Army regiments would, and a lot of the, the higher-ups um, were kind of of the viewer, who are these guys, and why they're not answerable to anyone, it seems to be, and they're doing their own thing, what's going on? But then they prove with the results that uh, they could do the business, as I would say. And I mean, one of the classic examples, you see pictures of, of Blur Me and Blur Paddy Me, and he's wearing a pullover. Yeah, it wasn't wearing a normal. Oh yeah, yeah, you would see, and you would see them in you know um, Arab headdress and big scraggly beards, um, things that other soldiers would probably get disciplined for if uh, they're higher up. Seen them <laughs> even like that, today, uh, even, even today, today, yeah, yeah, and they had that heavy drinking kind of culture as well that was going on. Um, anecdotally, actually, there's quite an interesting story. There was um, on one of the raids uh, through Egypt. Um, this would have been in 1942. They passed a wee small settlement of uh, huts and tents, and uh, one of the families that lived there had a young child who would later on go on to be uh, the Libyan dictator Muhammad Gaddafi. During one of those raids, so small world. As a soldier, there seems to be very little doubt about his abilities, his exploits. We're talking podcasts, we're talking books, mm -hmm. we're talking articles, you know, many, many years later and as we said part of this new military thinking where you could use small bands of elite people mm -hmm. uh, maybe strange people maybe different people to carry out uh, these very risky raids sometimes very brutally etc mm -hmm. etc et but they had the ability to do what I suppose had to be done uh, it, yeah. and that includes killing people of course And uh, but who was he really? This is it. And you mentioned there that they did things that had to be done, but they did get, uh, there was a lot of controversy regarding some of the actions, particularly the actions of Blair Main. In one case, um, they were carrying out a raid in Airbus and he heard some noise in a nearby hangar and it was a load of unarmed soldiers um, having a drink and having their dinner. And he and a, a couple of his colleagues, he directed them to gun them all down unarmed 
which obviously goes against all the so-called rules of conventional warfare. But yeah, when we get on to who he was, as a child, he was known, and even when he wasn't drinking, which wasn't often, he was known as quite a shy, reserved person. It was really when he had the, the drinking that he'd become quite a formidable character who had this reputation for fighting anyone he could get his hands on. There was actually one occasion where he wasn't too fond of the coverage of the war from the um, broadcaster Richard Dimbleby, so he went out to try to find him in the middle of Cairo um, so he could give him what for, as he put it. There's a lot of um, questions that were raised after his death because he died fairly young um, as to you know, questions about his sexuality, questions about sectarianism. Um, but there's no doubt that he was a complex character. He was a voracious reader. Um, he would write poetry. Um, you know, he had a background in, in law, um, which later in life he would return to. Um, so a very complex character, you would say. Drink seems to pop up. You know, I've been doing a bit of reading about him and you've mentioned the drink an awful lot here. Mm-hmm. You said it wasn't, he seemed to be, it seemed to be drink. Maybe there was a drinking culture in, in, in the SAS at that stage, but yeah, yeah. he seems to... Well, I think he created the drinking culture in the SAS because he helped find it, you know what I mean? I see, yeah. I see, I see. Yeah. Well, the, we, we've mentioned the drink an awful lot here. Yeah. And we and I mean, going forward, that's where the story will end really yeah, as well. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned these the, these things. and every, I mean, everyone's got a complex character and some... I know that... I know that you, 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 some say he was sectarian. He... he, he mm-hmm was annoyed about people for not understanding the, the Indeed, situation yeah. in Northern Ireland, yeah. didn't seem to have any intimate relations, mm-hmm. uh, shy. Uh, yeah, it seems to... It, m- maybe this is what the founder, one of the founders of the SAS should be, but it it comes across as someone who maybe not as charismatic as you would imagine as sometimes made out to be. Yeah, I think so. I think he was very much, you know, this case of two different people um, whenever he... He wasn't, wasn't drinking, but as well, it's the case with um, many of these historical figures when they die fairly young, a myth can be created and stories can be bandied about unless you were there and, and knew the fellow, you wouldn't know the truth. Like, for instance, people would say that he was sectarian, um, but then again, one of his, if maybe his only, his closest friend was a fellow by the name of Owen McGonagall. He was an Irish Catholic and he, was, and he uh, actually died during one of the first SAS raids um, and Paddy Mayne took it horribly, horribly badly and it affected him for the rest of his life. I think that's why he became quite morose as well in later life. Um, and as well, the question about the sexuality, there's no hard evidence for any of this. It's just the fact that he was never known to have an intimate relationship as such. He collected an unprecedented uh, Distinguished Service Order, Order medals mm-hmm. uh, and he and many other medals apart from that, but what mm-hmm. he didn't get was the Victoria Cross, which is the highest commendation mm-hmm. you can get in the British Army. That seems quite extraordinary. It's a strange one as well, because no one really knows, even to this day, why exactly um, he was denied a VC, because he was um, recommended for a VC. This would have been uh, during his time in... It was was for particular. It's obviously it was for his general service in the past as well, and how outstanding he was as a soldier. But it was in one case in he went through um, the front lines in Oldenburg in Germany um, with two armored jeeps and rescued um, a number of his wounded men, and he eliminated um, a German machine gun position, which was able to allow the rest of the army um, to advance. Um, and after that, it would have been Field Marshal Montgomery, one of the highest servant officers at the time, um, who recommended and wrote his recommendation for the VC. Um, but for some unknown reason, um, it was downgraded to 
which was his fourth DSO, which in itself is only a handful of people have ever got more or got four or more than two even. Um, so we still don't really know what happened. So a lot of people are saying it was it was because of his past and his insubordination and his lack of discipline. And then some people said he was known as the SAS man and not everyone in the higher ups in the British Army were enamoured with the SAS or the way they got on. Um, so he was ultimately blocked. Um, but again, we don't, we don't really know why exactly this happened, but uh, I think it has to be said as well, he wasn't a, a man, for, he was doing it for the accolades, but I think his family and supporters probably would have liked to see that happen. And indeed, um, a number of, uh, about a decade ago, there was a debate in Parliament, um, or a call in Parliament rather, to have him uh, awarded the VC posthumously, but that was, uh, that was turned down. But to this day, there's still calls for that to be looked at again. I may be speculating here, and obviously, I think we can take it for granted that all all of the things that he had seen and all of the things that he did probably had a profound effect on him. And we've, we've mentioned the drinking, etc. But he seemed to have a damn good war at the same time. Well, indeed, yeah, he seemed to be at home in the war and be at home. He had the, his comrades with him, and he seemed to be the kind of guy that was born for war. You know, he seemed the guy. I would dare to say he enjoyed it. He and, and you know he was a violent man in, in many ways, but he just seemed to be that's that's what he was born to do. So and then you would find that, and I think a lot of cases you know I've read about different characters that once that's over, they're lost. You know they don't know what to do. That's that was their purpose, and then when you don't have it anymore, you're and, and he didn't stay after the end of World War Two. He didn't he didn't remain in the army. He didn't going no. up the ranks and taking the pay and 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 in no. barracks life or whatever that no. took him. He he, he 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 no he left completely. I mean I think he was he was never built for being um being a being a manager or being a senior you know um army officer. You know he was he was a fighting man. But so afterwards um he had a brief uh, stint as a, an explorer in the Falklands. Um, and then he returned home and went back to his career in law. He actually became a secretary for the Law Society of Northern Ireland, but he did seem generally fairly unhappy with his life, quite morose. As I say, he went further into the drink. Um, he suffered from severe back pain uh, from his time uh, serving during the war that pre- prevented him from even watching rugby from the stands, which was one of the things he did love. But he rarely talked about his, his wartime service. And that's not unusual from what I know yeah. about uh, war well, veterans, yeah, etc. Especially people who've seen proper action. Of course, yeah. I mean, nowadays you would call it PTSD, um, which wouldn't have been such a big thing then. But you would have to imagine it would have had to um, affect him greatly, considering how close he was. And there were some occasions you read about his exploits that you wonder how he survived it. Um, but he did. But with that comes, you know. Uh, the the trauma, whether whether it's whether it's uh, obvious or whether it's kind of internalized. And he died young. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't live to become an old man. And no. he, I suppose, as you as you mentioned, dying young means you your legend is always in a way secure. Of course. And yeah. Uh, yeah. his life came to an end. I mean, ten years after the war. Yeah, yeah, he was aged only 40. Um, he was out for a night with some of his friends uh, at a Masonic meeting. Um, and then he went drinking afterwards. And in the early hours of the morning, he was driving on his roadster uh, through a country street down in Newtonards. And he uh, ran into the back of a farm vehicle. Um, and he died. 
This is strange ending for someone who had survived so much, especially it's in the desert. Something and something so innocuous as a, as a car crash. As, 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 a, as a car crash, and there's, there's yeah. no doubt that I mean, he, he, he was intoxicated. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he died many years ago, when, and we are dependent on books. And, and I know there's been a BBC drama about uh, Blair Main, mm-hmm. etc. Could you, and can we, separate enough fact from fiction and rumour from reality? To give uh, an appreciation of the man all of these years later. Well, I think there is, there is enough reports from his contemporaries at the time. You know, it isn't uh, it isn't in doubt of his exploits during the war. It's the more personal things, really, that that um, that remain quite mysterious. Um, but had, even if you just look at his war record, the medals that he had, you can't not say he was um, a tremendous soldier. What's his legacy? It is, is, in many ways, despite all of the things we've said, his legacy is undiminished, I think. Oh, 100%, especially at his home in Newton Arts. I mean, there's a a life-size statue of him erected there. Um, There's a Blair Association. And as you say, even the amount of books that have been written about him or that involve him, and now this new uh, BBC series, which has gone down very well. So he's definitely uh, someone who'll, who'll live on. Andrew Madden, thank you very much. This episode of The Bell Tale was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar. The sound design was by Graham Davidson. And if you enjoyed this podcast, you can hear many more like it at belfasttelegraph.co.uk forward slash podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.